Hi, I'm Brent from Tampa, Florida, and I'm an actuary. I enjoy listening to Compelled because I find the diverse stories of God moving powerfully in people's lives so encouraging. I even got to connect with one of the show's guests who is doing missions work that very closely aligns with where God may be calling me in the future. Hope you enjoy today's episode. We were to follow these Russian AGE ships, but they launched their helicopters. Now we got a, a helicopter buzzing us that's capable of, of taking, shooting missiles at us and sinking us like that. And I thought I was gonna die. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to season four of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, we heard from Catherine Zoller, a children's author who writes beautifully illustrated renditions of Bible stories that are set to rhyme. But before Catherine became an author or a Christian, she was a child delinquent, completely out of control and constantly in trouble with her family and the law. You can hear her entire story by tuning in to last week's episode with Catherine Zoller. Today, our guest is Jim Payne, who in 2005 deployed to the Middle East as part of a Navy SEAL platoon, alongside 15 of his closest friends and brothers in arms. While there, they experienced a terrible moment of tragedy and loss, and the grief would have destroyed Jim were it not for his faith in the Lord. So lean in and get ready for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. About a year ago, I met Jim at a conference in Georgia, and when I heard part of his story, I knew right away it could make for a great compelled interview. But alas, I didn't have my recording equipment with me. But thankfully, God worked things out, and I was invited to speak at a homeschool graduation in Virginia this summer. And I heard that Jim would be volunteering on their security team. So of course, I couldn't pass up the opportunity a second time. Here's a quick backstory on Jim's life growing up. He was born in 1963, his mother died when he was young, and his father remarried and then moved the family to California. Jim had a rocky relationship with his stepmom, and his father didn't express affection very well. His first meaningful exposure to Christianity was after joining his high school's football team. But to him, Christians just seemed a little weird. Jim wasn't sure what he wanted in life, so he joined the Navy right after graduating high school in 1981. And by 1985, he was working on a Navy salvage ship right in the middle of the Cold War. At this point, his Navy career had been relatively uneventful until one day when our story begins. Down in the Southern Pacific, we were to follow these Russian AGE ships. They were auxiliary ships. They have helicopters on them, but they're kind of more... I would call them spy ships sometimes, but they're more auxiliary, so they're not combatant either. But they were down in an area in the Southern Pacific where the Russians, they kind of told everybody, hey, don't go in this particular area of the ocean because we're testing one of our missiles to impact in that area. So the U.S. government sent us out by ourselves to go out there and follow these Russian ships. We brought a bunch of few spooks on board so they can, big old long cameras and we were videotaping them and, and tell, taking pictures of them the whole time. And we were waiting for this missile to impact, and, and our job was to go in there and take water samples and debris, pick it up and stuff like that, and see if we can get anything out of that, yeah. that hit. They finally shot the missile off, and it, it impacted the area. And we actually made it to the impact site before the Russians got there. So we were taking water samples and couldn't find any debris, but we were we had a, got a whole, whole case of concussion grenades, and we. We're off the bridge wing and one of our guys is just popping 
throw it in the water, one after the other, and lighten it so they go boom underwater, boom, you know. And are you trying to detonate something? No, down there no, we're, try, we're trying to mess with their sonar tracking the sinking of it. But they launched their helicopters, two of them, they're buzzing us. So we're going to general quarters. That's straight up and getting ready for combat, is what you're doing. Back then, I was a 50 caliber gunner. Yeah. The gunners on the bow, and we practiced shooting 50 gallon drums in the ocean. You know, that's it. And I had another gunner over here, but our, our guns, they didn't cross paths. What they did is they were locked like straight ahead. So, oh, no. but now we got a, a helicopter buzzing us that's capable of, of shooting missiles at us and sinking us like that. So that was kind of a, a crucial moment for me, where I was like 21 years old. I was scared because it was buzzing us hard. I, I tell you, for the truth of the Eric's, all I gave was flat jackets and a steel helmet. The helicopter had a lot more, so I was scared. It was like I said, this is not where I want to go. It's not how I want to go. I'm too young to go, and I thought I was going to die. Jim's ship was vastly outgunned by the Russian attack helicopters, but after what seemed like an eternity. The Russians had made their point, and the situation de-escalated. Now, you can imagine that at this moment, Jim had zero desire to remain in the Navy. And although he wasn't religious, he wasn't eager to discover whether or not there was an afterlife anytime soon. But even though thoughts of God weren't at the top of Jim's mind, God was already at work, planting a seed while Jim was in port in Hawaii. When you talk about God moments, you know, I think he addresses us in different ways, because earlier that year, me and my buddy, were, we were in Waikiki, and we were just your typical sailors, you know, looking for uh, booze and, and women. You know, that's our go-to thing. Yeah. We we're going to go party all night, but we got a hotel room so we can actually have some place to sleep so we don't have to drive. And we heard some live music down in, in Waikiki, on, like outside. So we looked down there, and we see a bunch of people gathering in this grassy area, so we just got to check it out. And when we get down there, we sat down in the grass because everybody's just sitting down enjoying the music. And then all of a sudden, we hear like, we look at each other. Did he say Jesus? Yeah, it sounded like he said Jesus, you know, in the music, the, the lyrics of the music. Huh. And then so we're like, what's going on? It was a really good, good contemporary rocking music. And all of a sudden, these two gorgeous girls sit on each side of us <laughs> in the grass and start talking about Jesus. Huh. And it, was, it was YWAM is what it was. Yeah. And I guess we committed ourselves to Christ at that point, you know, thinking probably that these girls liked us because of that. I don't know what. Yeah. But we, that was that was another seed, you know, other than more of the seed. But that's where I think when I made that decision to stay in the Navy, I reverted a little bit back to that. It's like, you know, because th they talked us up, you know, and says there's more to life than what we're doing, you know. Jim never saw those girls again, but he re-enlisted for another stint in the Navy. Sure, he had made a commitment to Christ, but it meant nothing to him. Years went by, and he kind of forgot about that entire night. Eventually, Jim was reassigned from Hawaii to Australia and then back to California. He had married a woman he had met in the Navy, but their marriage was falling apart and life was a mess. Which is exactly when God began to water the seed that had been planted years before in Hawaii. When I'd go to the base gym and work out. And there's always this guy there that that's, he was probably about five foot five. We call him a fire plug because he was just ripped. He had skull tattoos and fire flames on his arms. And I never really met him before, but we started conversations when we'd, we'd share a bench or something. And he was the Navy chaplain of the base there. Did you know that? I did not. I did not. So 
a couple of times he invited me to come on over, you know, to the church. I said, I'm the last person you want over there right now because I'm all kinds of frazzled. Because then we started going through a divorce, which was fine because I signed it. But just, again, just the struggle with financially and then a small base. Once the word got out that we were we were split, all the guys started hitting on her and all the girls started hitting on me. And I don't know what it is. It's like it's a soap opera. It really turned wow. into a soap opera. Because y'all were both working at the same base. Yeah, same base and same same building for that matter. Too. Oh, my goodness. So, so a lot of things were going on and I was struggling financially as well as everything else. And I think I had dropped about 25 pounds. You know, it was, it was obvious. I was kind of a mess at that time. So eventually the pastor had me come over just to, hey, just talk to him in his office instead of going to church. And so I started counseling with him. The reason he was so, the tattoos and everything, he was a former Marine. He was an enlisted Marine in the Navy. The Navy Chaplain Corps actually takes care of the Marines as well. We started talking and he started showing me some light, you know, and some truth. That, that was another turning point for me. Finally, during a base chapel service in 1988, Jim gave his life to Christ and fully committed to becoming a follower of Jesus. I started going to church uh, there on base, on the chapel. But by then I had lost my house, so I was living on base. I was living in a barracks. You know, I was still learning a lot, but I was pretty committed to what he was showing me and uh, serving a little bit. I was with the kids in ministry a little bit there. When, when everything started turning there, but but everything at work was kind of going south on me. Hmm. I had a guy come up to me in the middle of the, in the comm stay and make some comment about my ex who works down the hall, you know, that he's trying to hook up with her or something along those lines. And, of course, I had to throw a punch. And I wasn't trying to hit him, but I went a little too far and I hit the wall and put a hole in the wall. So I had anger issues going on still there, and I was still struggling there. Yeah. Plus, my, my ex was doing some things that really kind of, because she still had my last name. Yeah. She was doing some things that they weren't happy with either. So the command was... When they put that together with my name, even though we're not together anymore, they still think of me. So I was getting some bad uh, reports. And so I said, I got to get out of here. Jim transferred out of California and trained as a Navy diver. In 1993, he married his wife today, Sherry. For 10 years, Jim and Sherry continued following the Lord's plans faithfully and were active in their church and were raising three young children. By 2003, Jim had served in the Navy for 22 years and had risen through the ranks as a Navy diver, a corpsman, and was now a chief petty officer. Then, while he was stationed in Hawaii, an unexpected opportunity presented itself. Once a year, we get a bunch of new chiefs that get qualified. and We kind of indoctrinate them in or kind of, you know, bring them in in a hearty Navy, salty way, right? So anyway, we're at an event like that. It was a out in Hawaii, and so after the, we're cleaning up, we're having a couple of beers on the picnic table, and, and this fellow chief comes over and sits, sits down next to me. And We don't know each other real well, but we know each other a little bit, but he's a SEAL. He's, he's actually told me, he said, hey, my name's Dan. I'm uh, going to be the, the platoon chief for the new platoon that's forming up, and I'm going to be able to pick a lot of my guys. He asked if I would be committed to maybe coming in his platoon, being his platoon corpsman and diver. And what, what, what does that mean? Like, what's the repercussions of joining a platoon? Well, I'm in a dive platoon at this time. So it's just all divers in there. So we have a certain mission. When, when you go into a SEAL platoon, even an SDV platoon is a SEAL platoon. We're talking about land warfare. We're talking about helicopter operations. We're talking about shooting, demolition. You're involved with all that. Mm. You know, and it's all about your team. It's all about your guys. Yeah. So, so I've got 16 guys in a platoon. And back then... You had 12 SEALs, 
at least 12 seals, and then you had three technicians, we call them. So those are the three guys, the electrician, and then you have usually a diver and a, a diving corpsman. So that's, so that's what makes up an SDV. Back then, it was make, made up an SDV platoon. And the corpsman, again, is like basically the medic. Yeah, yeah. It takes care of everything medical. And they're yours. That's just the key is that they're your guys. You take care of them from beginning to end, you know. And then when you deploy, if you ever deployed in combat, you know, potentially you could be involved in that as well, particularly mm. as the corpsman side of the house. So I think I went back that night and asked Sherry, it says, that's two years, two years of being gone a lot and doing some high risk stuff. What do you think? You know, and she asked me, do you want to do that? And I said, I'd kill for that. For Corman primarily too, to be able to go do something like that. So she said, yeah, she's okay with it. And uh, so I joined a platoon and I think we formed up in, I want to say October of uh, 2003. As Jim said, joining a Navy SEAL platoon was an opportunity of a lifetime. And unbeknownst to him, his entire career had actually been building up to this point. He was trained as both a Navy diver and as a special operations corpsman, which is basically a battlefield medic. And that's actually quite a rare combination. In fact, there were only about 80 sailors in the entire U.S. Navy with that same combination of skills. Not only that, Jim held some significant seniority as a chief petty officer. But despite all the training he'd had over the last 22 years, the preparation he was about to undergo next would be unlike anything else he'd ever experienced. That's coming up right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, 
which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Throughout our history, American pastors and churches have played a vital role in the establishment and preservation of religious and civil liberty. Being salt and light requires knowledge of our culture as we fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples of all nations. Being a biblical citizen requires knowledge of biblical principles and how to apply them to the world around us. You and your church can be a catalyst for restoring biblical values in your neighborhood, state, and the nation. My friends at BiblicalCitizens.com sat down with pastors and other Christian leaders around the nation who are engaged in today's cultural battles. They've specifically designed a tool for churches and individuals that's easy to use, captivating, and impactful. You'll learn how the founders relied on their Christian moorings and biblical worldview to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. You'll be treated to thought-provoking historical facts and inspirational true stories that aren't taught in our educational institutions today. But ultimately, you'll be edified and equipped to embrace your faith and practice biblical citizenship in modern America. Go to biblicalcitizens.com to sign up and get free access for you and your church. Again, that's biblicalcitizens.com. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Jim Payne share about his journey of faith and also about the opportunity of a lifetime to join a Navy SEAL platoon. Now, one thing I want to clarify, although Jim joined a Navy SEAL platoon, he is actually a Navy diver, not a SEAL. And that's an important distinction Jim wanted to stress. But even though he wasn't officially a SEAL, he was a full member of the SEAL platoon and involved in every detail of what they did and every training exercise, some of which were pretty intense. So we start workups. So there's a cycle that every SEAL platoon goes through. So you go through MAR ops, marine operations, so rubber boat operations. And what they did is we, we actually launched Zodiac boats out of a helicopter on the far side over there between Molokai and Oahu. It's kind of the final mission profile after Marop. So we get over there, four boats, and we're supposed to transit over to Kaneohe and making communications while we're out in the boats. And so they drop us off right at sunsetting. Ideas get over there in five, five, six hours. Anyway, a storm brewed up pretty bad, and the support ship that was watching us had to take off. It was getting so bad. And we call it the perfect storm because we were doing troughs like this in, in Zodiacs. And then we had Zodiac engines dying, and the dam was puking, and, and the pontoons were deflating on us out there. So we had a comedy of errors was going on. And your support ship's gone also. Support ship took off, yeah. So we had no comms with anybody. In fact, the guy across from me, He's probably about six foot five, you know, he's a big guy, big seal. And, but when we were going down the trough like this, I, saw, I never saw his eyes get so big as I saw him then. We had to make a choice because we couldn't make it to Kaneohe. So we made it around the south end of the island. Actually, we got closer to Honolulu, actually when the, the waves started to calm down a little bit. 
How high were those waves, you think, the troughs? Oh, my gosh. It was because it was dark. It was black. Oh, even worse, man. It, it seemed like 20-foot drops because we were coming down so hard, our nose would hit the trough, bottom of the trough, and it would buckle up a little bit. So there's four of us in each boat, and so we had kind of lean as we're going down, and we had kind of lean the other way going up. Wow. I never been, I've been in a lot of boats operations, but that was a rough storm. But we still hung together, and we, we pulled back in probably about three or four in the morning. So it took twice as long as to get there and had a couple of beers in the platoon space and went home. These kinds of training activities were not untypical and show the rigor that U.S. Navy SEAL teams go through to prepare themselves for every situation. Their training, especially gyms, would be put to the limit during another exercise, this time for land warfare. It was a defining moment for Jim and one where he would rely on his training, but ultimately have to trust the Lord. We were doing live fire center peel training so it's, it's basically when you make contact with an enemy you essentially put lead downrange to keep its heads down but you kind of leapfrogging back but you're kind of crossing in the middle back and forth and you tap somebody on the shoulder and you move on from the fire so we split the platoon into two so one was shooting at one point while the other was over the other side of the berm reloading and kind of just resting and rehydrating so we we're taking turns back and forth and we had a training cadre with us they were monitoring everything and running the scenarios and stuff. And I happened to be over there on the other side of the berm and my seal corner, who was his first day with the platoon. Marcus, we just brought him on board. He just got off deployment. He came on board and he was his first day. He was over there with me. And all of a sudden you hear, because you hear the gunfire going off. It's very distinct sound. But the gunfire stops and we hear medic. So our medevac plan is to jump in this dually pickup. It's got the trauma bag and the O2 and the backboard in there. Marcus jumped in the passenger side, jumped in the driver's side, and we punched it up this hill. A lot of times we drill each other too, so we run drills like this all the time. But still, your adrenaline pumps when that call goes out and somebody's injured. So we get up that hill to my seal corpsman. He jumps out and he runs over there first and I grab the trauma bag. So I'm right behind him, but by the time I get there, one of our guys is laying in the grass, the long grass, and Marcus had put his hand on the entrance wound and, and a, an exit wound. And at this point, I'm still thinking, this is a pretty realistic drill. You know, this is kind of one of those things that I'm not too sh sure what's going on, but I'm playing it like it's real. Yeah. Regardless. So drop my bag. I say, ask him, what do you got? He's got a bullet wound here, and he's still conscious, still talking to us. So I'm doing a blood sweep. I blood sweep him. I don't find any other ricochets or wounds on him, right? So anyway, I give him a gauze, I see the real blood. I'm like, oh, we're, we're real here. It didn't change much, because again, I had good training to continue on, until I feel this heat between my legs, this, this searing heat. And I realize that I'm straddling his rifle barrel that's been fired a whole bunch, so it's hot. And it's on full auto, by the way. And it's, his right hand was holding it, so I was put it on safe and I gave it to one of the guys. But I realized he couldn't move his hand at all. He said, I, I tried to get him to squeeze my fingers. He wouldn't squeeze it. So I'm like, uh-oh, that's not good. So I'm checking different things, making sure I got some blood flow there, but it's not looking good at this point. And so Marcus, he's holding pressure on this whole, whole time talking to him. So I got to get an IV in this guy. We got to get him O2 on him. We got to get him out of here. He needs to get to a trauma center ASAP. So we got him on the backboard. We were getting him in the truck. So we have to pick him up from the truck. So we're driving in the back of a pickup and he's still conscious talking to us. We got basically a helicopter coming. And so we meet him there. 
we can only have two of us get on the on the bird with him. Actually, the, as we put him back in there, the IV got pulled out. So Marcus had to actually restick him in the air while we're in the, in the helicopter before we got to the civilian trauma center. So essentially, we got him there. He was starting to have difficulty breathing at that point when we got him in the ER. So they took him into the surgery right away. It was a defining moment because, you know, that's, I had to pray. That was one of those things that, that after you, as a medic, you want to get in there, you want to do what's right. You, you know, you want to save a life. That's, he's, he's your guy. He survived, but he was out of the platoon. And he had several surgeries after the fact because he'd have any kind of right-hand strength or dexterity. just took several surgeries over a period of a couple of years. It took out some nerves or something. In, in well, the only thing he had going for him is that it blew out. The surgeon said when he got in there, when he came out of surgery, he said he, he when he opened him up, he could stick his whole fist in his chest and not touch anything. Oh, he wow. He said it was almost like jello in there. Oh, wow. And so what was he said was saving grace. He had one artery that was still intact. It was feeding his arm. So they worked on that. They, uh, we got something to work with here. We can actually work with. So they salvaged his arm. Poor kid. He was, yeah, and he was just um, 24 years old, you know. Yeah. And, but but his, essentially his Navy SEAL career is over. Yeah. But the guy was with this guy. He was a believer, which I think was great because he's got a testimony beyond belief. He shouldn't be here. Yeah. Straight up, he should not be here. And he shouldn't have any kids either because there's other things that happened. Poor guy that related to that. But he does have kids. Yeah. He's got yeah. three three scrapping young boys. He came to my retirement ceremony, you know, for all the way from Colorado. He lives in Colorado. I remember he, he brought he brought me with a, a picture, a hand drawn picture, but it was one from one of his sons. And his, his his mom helped him write it, but it was like, Thank you for saving my daddy's life, you know, that kinda <laughs> that kind of thing. So Yeah. It uh Yeah, so it's so still kinda strong. It was through moments like these, life and death situations where Jim grew close to his team. Through sweat, tears, and literal blood, they all bonded with each other like brothers. We went through some crazy stuff in that platoon before we even deployed. And so that's what kind of set the tone for this platoon. It was a lot of things that happened throughout it, the training cycle that it was just like, wow. So we got tight. I, I heard it from senior enlisted guys already. This, we're unusually tight platoon and we have our downtime we play basketball we play football together you know we were always doing stuff together especially when we were away or when we were in town when we were in town we'd have uh, parties at somebody's house you know football super bowl party i think we went over to dan's house once and we help them each other move you know so it was an unusually tight platoon finally in april 2005 after 17 months of preparation the moment came they had been working towards deployment as a special forces unit. Now, Navy SEAL teams can be sent anywhere around the world, but for this particular deployment, they were sent on a lengthy tour into the Middle East, which was a hotbed of danger right in the midst of America's war on terror. They knew their missions carried risk, but they had no idea that this deployment would forever mark and change their lives. More on that right after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. 
And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit RedeemTV.com or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at RedeemTV.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Jim and his 15 other teammates on the SEAL team had just been deployed to the Middle East in April 2005. They comprised SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1, also known as SDVT-1. Once they arrived in the Middle East, half of the platoon was sent to a combat zone in Afghanistan to accompany SEAL Team 10, while the other half conducted operations closer to Qatar and the Persian Gulf. The plan was that halfway during the tour, the two halves would switch places, and so Jim's group was sent to the Persian Gulf for the first half of the tour. But just two months into their deployment, the other half of Jim's team, the ones that joined SEAL Team 10 in Afghanistan, became involved in a tragic mission. This mission is detailed in a popular book and movie called Lone Survivor, written by Marcus Luttrell, the only survivor from the mission. Incidentally, Marcus is also the same Navy SEAL corpsman Jim told us about earlier who worked alongside him to save Andy's life during the training accident. This particular ill-fated mission was called Operation Red Wings. So Operation Red Wings was insert four guys into the Hindu Kush. They transited for quite a while and they were looking at this particular village for a, a top Taliban leader. So they were up there to kind of get eyes on if they had Two of the guys are snipers. Matt and, and Marcus were snipers. So if they had that close of a shot, they could have potentially taken him out if, if that was the case. So that was the whole operation. It's supposed to be go in, take a short period of time, confirm it, and then get out kind of a thing. They went in, I think, on the 27th of June. They got rolled up by some goat herders. And so they had a, a, an old guy, a younger guy, and then a young kid. Essentially, the way it happened was is... Um, they decided to let him go. So they went straight down to the village and told the Taliban. And so our guys were trying to get out of there at some point, but they couldn't get comms so they could get picked up. So essentially the Taliban rallied up pretty quick and ensued in a, a pretty ferocious uh, firefight with our guys. As far as high ground goes, our guys lost the high ground pretty early because it was a very sheer cliff that they were working off of. During the battle, um, lost Danny. He got killed early. Um, Murph Murph got killed shortly thereafter. And again, the timelines are a little hazy, but uh, Murph was able to call for our assistance. So we had to get to an open air high ground with the satellite phone and uh, tell him we need, we need assistance. We're being overrun. So he was able to do that before he got, got killed. 
and then Marcus and Matt were kind of on the run still, but they were shooting RPGs at them. There was, they say, 40 to 50 Taliban against the four guys. They got split up at some point after an RPG hit them, and I think Marcus got knocked, knocked unconscious. Two men were down, and two more were still on the run, although one was unconscious. The distress signal was finally heard back at the main base, and a quick response force was sent out. There's two Chinooks that went out there. Normally, when you go out in a combat area, you have Cobras, attack helicopters, that go with you. There was a mix-up, and so the two Chinooks went out by themselves. But no Cobras at all? No, no, no support yet. When they, the first Chinook was going to land, not land, but just tip off and get the guys off, the Taliban, and they know our tactics, and they saw the birds, and they shot an RPG back end of a Chinook and blew it up. Three of my guys were on that. So we knew that happened when we were still in Iraq. So we knew the Chinook went down. Oh, we didn't know how bad or anything, but you know, praying, you know, that we're survivors, period. You know, there were 16 guys in there and plus the air crew, the army air crew. And then plus we didn't know about the, the details of the other guys on the mountain. Tragically, all 16 men on the Chinook died. Eight from the U.S. Army Special Forces and eight more Navy SEALs. It was one of the deadliest days in Navy SEAL history. Jim and his team were still unsure about the information that was trickling in from Afghanistan, but within days, they were transferred over. Among the dead SEALs from the Chinook was Dan, their SEAL platoon chief, meaning that Jim was the next senior enlisted of the platoon and therefore bore the weight and responsibility of identifying their deceased comrades and helping the team work through their grief. Literally within, it seemed like 30 or 45 minutes after getting there, they announced there's some Blackhawks coming in with body bags. Mm. They said, they're your guys. So we went out there, met the helicopters as they landed, and it was just two body bags right there. It was, um, we didn't know who at the time yet, but we put them, rolled them into the morgue. The, the mortician, he's like, you guys stay out here for a minute. Let me, let me get them prepped, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because he, he wanted us to help ID him. So this is 4th of July, 28th June is when they got rolled up and got killed. So they've been out in open air for what, six, seven days at that point already. So it was Danny and uh, Murph. I knew he had a, a Templar cross on his left arm. So we rolled up his sleeve and sure enough, that was a Templar cross on, on, his, on his left arm. And then, then we went back to the compound where the team was at, and then probably within an hour, Marcus rolls around the corner. As you may recall, Marcus was on the mountain at the beginning of the firefight and had been knocked unconscious partway during the gun battle after he saw two of his teammates killed. He found some friendly Afghanis who pulled him in and tried to help him. The Taliban found that he was at, and there was some kind of conflict there. They did get a hold of him, and they were going to cut his head off, essentially. They were going to kill him. But we were able to get in there and, and rescue him. And he came in and gave us all a hard hug. He was still bleeding from frag wounds, from RPGs. And wow. He only spent about a half hour with us, more or less, and kind of gave us a debrief of what happened on the mountain that he recollects, you know, with that. And then they had to send him off to Germany to get, get healed, you know, get surgeries and stuff like that and get fixed. Before we got there, they actually, the guys in the Chinook, uh, the Marines had gone in and actually picked up everybody before we even got out there. But my, we had one guy missing. Matt. Matt was missing, yeah. So, and Marcus told us that he thought he was on the run because, again, they split up at some point. We were actually getting some radio hits. We thought he was on the run. Or it could have been a trap. We spent the next 
two weeks of dropping flyers, leaflets with little code thing on there. So if he is out there, you know, we can we actually, we're trying to communicate with him if he's out on the run. In the meantime, as the only chief of the platoon, it was my duty to go through all the guys' gear that we lost. So I had inventory, all their personal and operational gear. Mm. One of those things where you really, you know, it's important. You want to get it right and get everything there. So that was a tough job to do that during that time while we're trying to plan out a rescue operation because right now it's considered a combat search and rescue. And then probably another week or so, there was a report that some local Afghani guys, they'd found uh, Matt's body out there. Mm. So um, so at least we had accountability. And so we went and got him too. And, um, and all this time I'm, I'm praying, you know, I'm just praying, where's God in this thing? Yeah. Because at, at the time, that was the worst tragedy in Naval Special Warfare history. We were worried they're going to send us back home because we wanted revenge. You know, we want to get out there. We want to put some bullets in some heads. You know, that's, that was our mindset. We, we, we want to stay. So they did allow us to stay, but we, they pulled us out of the combat zone. A few months later, their platoon's tour ended, but definitely not the way that any of them thought it would. They flew back to the United States where lived the young widows and fatherless children and other family members of their five closest friends who died. But even in the darkest of times, Jim believes there was still purpose, and there were seeds, some that were planted and others that were watered. Well, we got everybody back, and uh, after the incident, I hate to say we all kind of clammed up. So, so a lot of times guys are, are, are getting timid and sharing their feelings on this stuff, and, unless it's in-house. And it's hard when we're not together much anymore, but... Uh, I can't see how it hasn't affected them to see the finality of life. There's one that was right smack dab in front of us. Yeah. You know, it it can happen like that. And, you know, I prayed hard during this whole event. I prayed a lot of things, you know, asking God and asking God for revenge. You know, I I mean, I asked God for a lot of things at this point just to maintain and not crack up and not lose it for my guys because I found the peace with them through this whole event. And I want that for my the rest of my platoon as well. Yeah. You can share it. And I think they know, well, they knew, they knew I go to church and they knew Matt went to church. In fact, when I was going through his gear, Matt had a Bible. Um, uh, Murph had a Bible there. You know, they say there's no, uh, no atheists in foxholes, you know, that kind yeah. of mindset. So that was one of the things that, cause some of the guys weren't believers, but I like to think that the, with prayer that, that I had been doing, there's there's a seed planted. Yeah. Probably about seven or eight of us went on a they called the family trip. So this is three months after the incident happened. Naval Special Warfare paid for us to pay our specs essentially to our guys. And so they flew us out from Hawaii to San Diego and we, you know, met with his family members, which <laughs> I'll tell you what, that was that was tough too, because um, it's still raw for them too. Um, but but a lot of the family members came up to us after that. Yeah. That brought a lot of closure to them, just for, I mean, even the funny stories, you know. So that's what they like to hear the best, obviously. That's They want to hear the, the fond stories or the funny stories we had with, 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 with their their loved ones. And <laughs> the idea is to keep the, you know, their, the guys' memories alive, you know. And, and, uh, and so things like this help with that. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I picked up on when we left Afghanistan, when we were at the USO 
there on the tarmac waiting for the plane. They had this mural. It was a picture. It was, it was essentially like three soldiers on a mountain, but as the, as the sun was setting, so it was just silhouettes. All you could tell was the silhouettes like of the guys. And on it, it had the caption says, um, Operation Enduring Freedom, live a life worthy of their sacrifice, that kind of thing, you know. Mm. And uh, I thought that was great because I equated that um, almost immediately to live a life worth Christ's sacrifice, you know. It was like, wow. So, but if you just put those two together, you know, man, you know, buddies lost in the battlefield is one thing, but if you just take that raw emotion, feelings, you know, that you have for your brothers, think about Christ, what he did, you know, just for me, you know, let alone anything else, it, it, it should be raw. It should be, when it is that raw, it, it's serious, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, every day I try, try to, before the kids even got out of the house, I tried to elicit that into their, into them, I want them to feel that. If they would just follow God's plan, you know, and not that he's going to be all right, but you come out of it. You come out of it with scars, you come out of it with bruises and a lot of hurts in life, but you'll come out of it better. As our conversation began to wind down, Jim wanted to share some closing thoughts. God's been involved from the beginning, you know, and I didn't know what I said or what I committed to when those girls led us to Christ. And I didn't know about that fire plug Navy chaplain, you know, and he was just being real. And so God knew what it would take for me to, to absorb that, you know, and to receive it. We're here on this earth for only a short amount of time. A lot of the times within the service, it's kind of natural because you're serving, right? You're serving something bigger than yourself. Not only your country or your service, but you're serving, um, you know, the guy next to you. I'm able to use story sometimes, a lot of times, to uh, encourage, particularly men, Maybe had a seed in there, and if I watered it a little bit, and my part was to water a little bit or plant that little seed, you know, then by how I acted or how I didn't act, that's all I guess, you know, God's got me here for. So if I can do that, then I'm complete my mission. Well, Jim, I appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing candidly with me, and I think it's really powerful. Again, I, I appreciate being able to tell some of the story, particularly for, for the guys. And yeah, if it, if it affects anybody in a positive way or and then that's part of that mission too. Jim's story has a lot of themes running through it. Purpose, loss, grief. But perhaps the theme that stands out the most to me is seeds. God planted so many seeds in Jim's life, including that terrifying moment on the Navy salvage ship facing Russian attack helicopters, or the two YWAM girls on the beach in Hawaii, or the Navy chaplain during Jim's divorce. And of course, the seeds that God planted through Jim into the lives of his fellow team members and their families in the midst of tragedy. And the seeds that Jim is planting today as he shares his story with others. No matter what, no matter where, no moment is insignificant. And even today, moments after you stop listening to this podcast episode, you may be planting seeds in the life of someone else. So let's all be willing vessels to plant seeds wherever God sows. Today, Jim and his wife live in Virginia. He's retired from the Navy, but now serves in a civilian role as the Deputy Current Operations Officer for a Navy Special Operations Unit, which is a fancy way of saying that he helps facilitate Navy SEAL operations around the globe. Check out our show notes at our newly redesigned website, compelledpodcast.com, where we've included behind-the-scenes photos of Jim throughout his Navy career and his team members from the SEAL platoon. We'll also include some helpful links and resources, especially for veterans that are listening to this episode and have struggled with grief and loss. 
Again, you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com. And just so you know, our original interview with Jim has a ton of other cool stories that we didn't have time to include in our episode today, including how he met his wife, Sherry, which is a crazy cool story about how God brought them together, and of course, other war stories. And trust me, the story about him being bombed in Iraq while sitting in a porta potty is unforgettable. If you support us financially on Patreon, you can get access to all of our full-length behind-the-scenes interviews, including Jim's. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, can you please just take 30 seconds and share it with someone you know? Word of mouth is the number one way that we've grown, and our audience is actually starting to get large enough that with a little more growth, we might actually be able to do this full-time. And that way, you won't have to wait nine months between each season. I mean, how cool would that be? This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson. Our media assistant is Ethan Adams, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to Gabriel Afont for filming this interview. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Fred and Casey Weymouth. Fred was once a successful insurance salesman, but now a homeless drug addict, completely in bondage to heroin and other substances. Casey had a promising military career, but had become a hopeless alcoholic. And no matter how many recovery programs she went to, she always landed back at the bottom of a bottle. Both of them were desperately looking for their next fix, but they could never find what they wanted until they fixed their eyes upon Jesus. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. You know, at that time in my life, I, I didn't have time for God. I was at a house party. Um, I'd already been introduced to alcohol and, and uh, marijuana. Um, those were just things that were prevalent. Uh, a friend of ours had a vial of uh, powdery substance, dumped it on the table. I did it. I found out later on that that was heroin. Heroin was my God. The drugs were my God. The alcohol was my God. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.